Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is simply the best way to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of sources, plus links to original writing on our own website. Sign up for SubChina access, and you get all that and much more with stories and everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship. And innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands and perhaps well over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region, we're sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you today from the Seneca South Studio in Durham, North Carolina. Joining me from Nashville, Tennessee, is a Thetan whose dianetic auditing has freed him from the prison of his reactive mind and all those engrams, and who, despite years of quack psychotherapy, is now, I am delighted to report, ever closer to clear. Jer- Jeremy, greet the people, but please, man, you, you got to stop telling people about Xenu and the volcanoes and the hydrogen bombs, man. It's just really not good for the church's image. Oh, gosh, this is a new low, Kaiser. <laughs> it's my reactive mind. Sorry. Yeah. Man. Well, you know, I do oh. sometimes think I should start a church. It seems to be the most profitable business here in the South. So, <laughs> you know, you have the space for it. I mean, when when Fan Fan and I visited you in in uh, your place, we saw that you know that massive barn that you have, that gigantic yeah. structure. You should use that as a cult headquarters. I mean, there was probably a cult there before you, right? No, we do have the right environment for a cult. We've got our own water supply and a, a valley that you can cut off access to the outside world. So, um, yeah. Exactly. When uh, things really get, uh, you know, when the shit really hits the fan with China and America, uh, the gold corn cult will open for business. All right. We got to come up with a snappy name for it. The gold corn cult doesn't work. Anyway, folks. Enough nonsense. <laughs> yeah. uh, short show today, so we wanted to pad it with some nonsense. We just want to bring you an update from Anthony Dapparan, who was on the show just a couple of weeks ago to talk about Hong Kong. As you all already doubtless know, much has happened since that episode dropped, including a major escalation by a small group of protesters who uh, decided to break into the LegCo building and smash up some uh, symbols of the Hong Kong government's authority and Leave a little spray paint, some slogans, before leaving the building. We also saw another massive demonstration on July 7, uh, but with a very interesting twist. Now, on Tuesday the 9th, Hong Kong's chief executive, Carrie Lam, has just said that the controversial bill that would have allowed extradition to the mainland is, in her words, dead. But somehow she stopped short of saying that the bill would actually be withdrawn permanently. And the protests continue. So we thought it would be a good time to ask Anthony Dapran to come back on. Anthony is a corporate lawyer by day and a chronicler of protest by night. He's been one of the smartest observers of events there. And Anthony, we are just delighted that you could make the time to join us again on such short notice. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's, it's a pleasure to be back with you. Great, great. Hey, let's, let's just start with a factual account of what transpired during the protests last week and the events of the afternoon that led eventually to the brief occupation of LegCo. Yeah, sure. So the 1st of July, obviously, is the anniversary of Hong Kong's handover from British rule to the mainland. And traditionally, the the morning of that day has been marked by a flag-raising ceremony at uh, Grand Bohemia Square at the Convention Center, which was the, the site of the handover ceremony itself back in 1997, and speeches by the chief executive and various dignitaries. So um, this year, protesters had indicated that they were planning to... Um, 
I guess, protest that flag raising ceremony, and and as a result, um, the whole area was sealed off by police. Um, Carrie Lam and all the dignitaries were forced to watch the flag raising ceremony from inside because it was deemed not safe to actually be outside to see the flag raised. And in the meantime, several blocks away, protesters early in that morning were already uh, clashing with police, and there was some pepper spray deployed and those sorts of things. So the the, the day got off to a a fairly rocky start, but after mm. that, it um it seemed to calm down mid-morning and people were preparing for the very large annual protest march that takes place uh, every year on 1st of July. Right. So while um, people were gathering over in in Victoria Park to to commence that traditional march, uh, increasing numbers of the young protesters who had been organizing through online forums and so on and who had been engaged in those guerrilla sort of hit and run protests that we talked about last time we spoke began gathering around the Legislative Council building and early in the afternoon began an effort to uh, try and break into that building. They gathered in very large numbers. They were using uh, metal barriers, metal trolleys, uh, poles, pieces of um, street barricades that they'd um, deconstructed and then reassembled into battering rams to uh, slowly uh, start beating on the the tempered glass windows and doors of of the Legislative Council building. Now, I think that the really important thing to bear in mind is this took hours. Um, Yeah, yeah. The glass doors are really heavily reinforced tempered glass. And then behind them, there's also some stainless steel shutters. And so the effort began I guess around you know two or so in the afternoon, and took a good six or seven hours for them battering away constantly at this glass you know, before they could break through. And all this while, the the police were was sitting inside the Ledgeco building, basically watching them. They they did react at one point, right? I mean, they they did come out and do a sort of salvo of. They did a bunch of pepper spray or, or tear gas at one point, didn't they? Yeah, a little. And they did at first sort of issue, issue verbal warnings telling people, look, if, if you come here in here, we're, we're going to arrest you, you know, sort of don't don't try it. Um, but they didn't really follow through on those on those threats um, and, and were really largely passive. And you could see them through the windows um, just sort of sitting around waiting, um, not really taking an active role. And this was unusual because in the past, the Ledgeco building had really been a red line. And I'd seen them on many occasions in the past, you know, defend that entrance to the Ledgeco building um, using pepper spray, you know, very actively in that space. And they've never before allowed protesters to get so close. So it was sort of notable in the first instance that that the police weren't doing more to stop this. Um, in the mean- why why is that do you think Anthony um look that's an interesting it's an interesting question it's almost the question of the moment um because what happened you know later when the protesters managed finally to to, to break in um was that the police fully withdrew um a, and left them to it and then you saw those scenes that that I think we've all seen of the protesters then rampaging through the Ledgeco building and so the question is why did they allow that to happen um I've heard a, a couple of different theories. Um, one theory was that um, they were still on this this sense of wanting to, um, you know, avoid using too much force given the criticism that had been leveled at them in previous weeks, and so were were reluctant to use the full measure of force that they might have used to to try and stop this. Um, the police themselves said there were operational challenges using things like tear gas or pepper spray in such a confined space. But again, I've I've seen them 
using those very tools in that same space before, so I don't quite buy that. And what we seem to be left with is this theory that um, basically the Hong Kong government decided to allow the protesters to do this, possibly as something of a a calculated gamble that in doing this, they would um, do themselves a a disservice, sort of do some harm to their own image and cause the protests themselves to lose support among the broader community. And did that happen? Was there schism because of the violence? Or uh, maybe violence is the wrong word because of the uh, um, vandalization? Well, well, no, it didn't seem to happen. Um, at the same time that this um, action at the LegCo building was happening, we, of course, had several hundred thousand people marching just a few blocks away um, in, the, in the, the very large protest march. There was a fair bit of free flow back and forth between the two groups. So people certainly, having finished the large peaceful protest march, many of them came and, and, and gathered around LegCo and joined the crowds there, um, supporting the people breaking into the LegCo building. Um, and it's important to bear in mind, even though only a, you know, a small group actually went inside the LegCo building, I mean, there were hundreds, if not thousands, supporting them. There um, were sort of th- these sign language messages being passed along chains of people running hundreds of meters um, through the crowds down the road and across to the supply depots to ferry various supplies back to the front line at LegCo. And I, I actually posted some videos of this on, on Twitter. It's a pretty yeah, yeah. remarkable site. Um, so there, there, there were plenty of people involved supporting this action and, and a fair bit of you know uh, flow back and forth between the two groups. And even sort of in, in the aftermath, the most common sentiment that I'd heard was even among people who were not in full agreement with what the protesters did in terms of you know entering the LegCo building and the damage they did there. Nevertheless, sort of f- understand why they did it, understand the frustration and anger and anger that pushed them to that point, and, and really do somewhat forgive them for it. So, if that was the government's gamble, um, it doesn't seem to have paid off. And, and I think they um, really um, sort of overlooked the fact that there were still several hundred thousand people a few blocks away sympathetic to the underlying cause. Um, not to mention you know the millions who had marched in previous weeks, and they weren't going to be so easily uh, dissuaded, or, or rather that the, the cause wasn't going to lose support just because of that that one action. So you've not really heard anyone uh, critical of that, that extra step or, or suggesting that they fell into some sort of a trap? Look, you know, there, there certainly have been some critical voices. Obviously, you'd expect that from the pro-Beijing side. Um, among the sort of the, the broadly pro-Democrat side, there have been a few critical voices, but even those who condemned it, you know, were uh, not really strong in their condemnation. And, and almost everyone expressed the view that, you know, they understood what led to this point and, and certainly felt that the government and, and Carrie Lam's refusal to meet the protesters' previous demands was just as much to blame as as the protesters themselves. Um, so it, it certainly, uh, yeah, it doesn't seem to have at all undermined the protesters' cause. And I think we saw that in, in the subsequent events of the past week as well. So, Jeremy, you're a close observer of Chinese media coverage of all this and all major events. Uh, what would you say, Jeremy, about, about the PRC media's highly selective coverage of events, uh, especially with reporting on the LegCo occupation, which was, I think, like pretty much the first time they said anything about Hong Kong <laughs> Uh, just about. I mean, there's very, there's still very little about it in the Chinese press, official or otherwise, and the internet has been scraped pretty clean of uh, discussion of this. 
uh, the top story, Google, uh, not Googling, on Baidu News uh, when I looked uh, a few hours ago um, searching for Hong Kong protests. Uh, it's so easy to get them confused. <laughs> yeah, so easy to get them confused. So, I mean, Baidu News gives you an idea of what the, the official story is sure. because all the you know sources are uh, officially approved and... You generally have a pretty close correspondence between what's on Baidu News and what's in the the, the state media. Uh, so there's not a lot, and it points to collusion with uh, Western forces. That's uh, a very strong uh, emphasis of pretty much every mention of uh, the Hong Kong protests. And there's talk of you know uh, people causing chaos and uh, calling the protesters violence. Uh, but the general strategy seems to be to try to avoid coverage of it uh, completely where possible. Right, right, right. I should just add back on that question of, of sort of community sentiment and, and reaction in Hong Kong. One of the things that many people have commented on is the way the protesters went about uh, trashing the LegCo building, as it were, um, in that they did it in a very targeted and, and highly symbolic fa- uh, fashion. Um, uh, they targeted for vandalism i suppose um you know symbols of of the hong kong government's undemocratic control of hong kong and symbols of beijing state power in hong kong so they did things like you know spray painted out the words people's republic of china from the the hong kong symbol they uh, damaged um, portraits of previous chief executives um they damaged copies of the basic law but um they didn't touch the books in the library they didn't touch expensive artifacts they left you know notably left money in the in the fridge when they took cans of soda from the fridge um so they went about it in a very targeted way such that actually um, uh, Dung Kai-cheng, the, the Hong Kong author who I mentioned in my recommendation last time, gave a very thoughtful statement where he says that, you know, yes, they were violent, but um, what kind of violence was it? It was um, thoughtful, orderly, um, and symbolic acts of violence. And he compared and contrasted that with the violence of the police and the violence of the system uh, against which people were protesting. So certainly I think that was a, there was a sense that the way in which they went about it wasn't just a wanton act of destruction, but a a carefully, almost a carefully considered symbolic act. Yeah, yeah. I think that was that was largely the read uh, among people observing from the West as well. There was quite mm. a bit of, of, of sympathy for uh, for the protesters for the frustration that they had sort of reached mm. to this breaking point and to the way they they comported themselves, even though they you know they did break into the building. Uh, still, lots yeah. of mysteries. Like I. I I still, I, I do think it was odd. I think it was about by four thirty p.m. or so. I was watching this from Dalian, by the way. Uh, by about mm. four thirty, they had smashed that hole in the lower glass pane, and it was you know easy to get in at that point. And the cops had evacuated. Some people went in, but the the, the metal uh, grating was still in place. When mm. did that 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 steel barrier come up? I mean, that seems like the most obvious uh, sort of deliberate entice you in kind of an action. Yeah, they broke through that around about 9 p.m. and then they stayed in the building until around about midnight. So it was about three hours altogether they were there. Oh, I see, I see. So they actually they actually broke through the steel yeah, barrier as well. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't, it hadn't yeah. been, okay, all right. Fascinating. Anyway, um, the attitude more generally toward protests in Hong Kong is something that uh, Li Yuan wrote about in the New York Times on July 1st. I have to say that that piece really resonated with me. Um, I've seen much of the same, you know, 
the same kind of uh, take from many of my Chinese friends in Beijing uh, when talking about earlier rounds of protests or just even about Hong Kong more generally. Uh, she talks about how many of them think the protesters are just kind of wasting their time and they should be directing their energies, you know, more productively toward building the Hong Kong economy. And she chalks this uh, this whole approach, this whole attitude up to the success that the Beijing government has had in convincing people in China to frame everything, uh, you know, to, to lens everything through economic development and to see that, you know, as having primacy over, over all else. Uh, did you read that piece, Anthony? And, and what did you make of it? Yes, I did read that. It, it was a great piece and uh, consistent with you know, things that I've heard from friends in the mainland as well. Um, I found it uh, an interesting counterpoint to the question that's often raised about whether you know, Beijing fears contagion of these Hong Kong protests across the border. Um, you know, one thing obviously militating against that is is the, the censorship, which uh, Jeremy was describing earlier. But the other aspect is that I just don't think there's that much sympathy in the mainland for protesters in Hong Kong, as, as Liu and so well describes in her piece. Um, that said, I guess the only question in my mind is whether it's a, um, it, it's a, a, a sort of class-based view, i.e. people you know, who are sort of upper-middle-class um, folks on the mainland who are economically well-off and, and, and sort of in a position to, to take advantage of, of you know, the, the economic development in Hong Kong would feel that way. And I wonder if we went further down the socioeconomic rungs, you know, both in the mainland and Hong Kong, whether their views might not converge at that point. That's just the, the one aspect I'd be interested to perhaps dig into a little more. Do you have any actual experience? Because, of course, the large demonstration on Sunday, July 7, uh, was in Kowloon, hmm. and it was apparently intended specifically to appeal to or to communicate with mainlanders. A lot of Mandarin slogans uh, and apparently people using airdrop and other hmm. means to try and send, you know, censored material to mainlanders' phones. Uh, did you talk to uh, any mainlanders in Kowloon uh, at that time, or do you have any sense of how they reacted to this uh, Sunday demonstration? Um, unfortunately, I wasn't there on Sunday, um, so I'm only sort of going by what I've reports I've read in the media and, and seen elsewhere. And it seemed that reaction from mainlanders was sort of mostly befuddlement. Um, I don't think they quite understood what was going on and, and even the fact that it was directed at them. Um, and I, I don't know how many of them were walking around with iPhones with airdrops switched on, ready and waiting to receive the propaganda that was circulated. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know how successful it was in that in that aim of sort of uh, bringing the message to the masses from the mainland. They should have used Huawei, you know. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that, that's that's fascinating. I, I'm I'm really curious to see. I'd I'd love to to speak to some people who were in Kowloon, uh, mainlanders to see. I mean, I can imagine what the reaction was. Uh, I, I mean, what I would be interested in is, you know, there's been uh, some demonstrations in Wuhan uh, mm. and uh, apparently quite large. Uh, that's right. Uh, and yeah. I think it's because of an in yeah. environmental uh, issue. Um, I would be interested what mm. those protesters yeah. would think about Hong Kong if they knew about it. Um, I, I suspect you're right that there is a, a sort of class or an economic component to uh, people's views. Uh, Li Yuan's set and your set and my set, really, in China, these are people with good jobs mm. who are doing very well in the current yeah. system. Thank you very much. Well, I mean, even my kind of scuzzy rock musician friends uh, do seem to share that view. I mean, you'd think that, you know, they, they're all about sticking it to the man, rock and rollers and all that. But uh, really, a lot of them are sort of like, what are you complaining about? You guys in Hong Kong have it pretty good. Yeah. 
Yeah, there, there, I, there's that too. That I mean, the sense that Hong Kongers already have it much better than mainlanders. I, I think that's uh, that's a very common sentiment. I've I, I've heard that, and um, not so much mm. this time, but uh, the umbrella movement um, mm. when I was right, still living yeah. in Beijing. I, I heard mm. that a lot. Me too. Me too. So, so what's next? Maybe Anthony, you can take us through a couple of possible scenarios for how this whole thing plays out in in the months to come. Yeah. So, um, I think that, again, the the scale of the protest on Sunday really surprised everyone. Um, the protest organizers, as well as the government, um, it, it was the, the clearest expression yet that um, the, the the violence at Ledgeco the week before had not um, done anything to damage public support for the protests. Um, and perhaps as a result of that, um, Carrie Lam, the chief executive, came out today with another set of statements in a press conference again playing these word games she said that you know the bill is uh, is is dead um in fact that the phrase she used was a shoujongjongqin which i think means sort of to you know sort of die one, a natural death in one's bed um but she still wouldn't uh use the word withdrawn and that really i think angered protesters that you know notwithstanding everything that had happened she still wasn't willing to say the one word that she wanted that they wanted to hear from her and she also sort of made another a number of other sort of half attempts at meeting the protesters' demands. She said that uh, there would be a, a an investigation of the police actions, but not by an independent judicial inquiry, but just by the Independent Police Complaints mm. Council, which is a, a sort of government body that investigates these kind of things normally, um, and made a few other points that just the, the, the reaction from the protesters and, and Democrat politicians was basically that she was um, not really giving them anything that they want. So uh, again, she's, uh, I suppose, attempted to... You you know, ameliorate the community sentiment in Hong Kong and has um, failed to do so, which I think means we're going to see um, more protests in the week ahead. So what we've got um, is a, another protest planned in, in the Sha Tin district coming up this Sunday. And that's one of the really interesting things about this protest movement, that instead of just taking the the normal protest route from you know Victoria Park in Causeway Bay through to Admiralty every time, which is sort of the standard Hong Kong protest route. Um, they've done this protest, you know, firstly in Kowloon last Sunday, they're doing one in Sha Tin um, this coming weekend. And the plan is to have a protest in all of the 18 districts of Hong Kong over the coming weeks and months. Um, so really taking this out to the suburbs, to the hinterlands of Hong Kong. Um, at the same time as that, we are seeing these Lenin walls. Um, so the, the Lenin wall was a side originally in, in Admiralty at the Umbrella Movement and then revived again over the last few weeks protests where people would pay these um, colourful post-it notes with messages of support and, and messages related to the protests all along this, this wall, producing a, a wonderful collage of, of sort of art and, and messages of support and, and messages of protest. So unlike mm. in the Umbrella Movement, where there was just one of these in Admiralty, these are now springing up in districts all over Hong Kong. Um, they're appearing in, in, in subway um, tunnels near railway stations and on footbridges um, out in the New Territories. Apparently, there's one on, on Chengzhou, one of the outlying islands. Islands, um, spots all over Hong Kong Island. So it's really um, spreading throughout the suburbs. So this this movement is is in interesting ways and sort of unlike past protest movements in Hong Kong, really spreading out um, among the people. And so that combined with um, this sort of desire to to sort of keep up the pressure from the protesters' side is going to create a a really interesting dynamic. If the government can't find its way to doing something to sort of diffuse the situation and start giving people something that they want, and I, I really sort of wonder, is it going to fade away with protest fatigue, which I suspect, you know, Carrie Lam and the government are probably banking on? Right. Or is it just going to keep snowballing? Um, and I think both are, are equal possibilities at this point. 
Both are equal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but you think, um, how to put it, uh, it, there are equal possibilities, meaning that it is possible that Hong Kong people are fed up enough that they're just going to stay on the streets until they see some change or until the tanks come. Yeah, um, I, I, I am getting that sense. And, and again, I guess you know, we all live in a, a bit of a filter bubble to some, some extent, but I am getting the sense that this is, this is the, the feeling is different to past protest movements, I feel. And there, there are people that uh, are willing to keep pushing on with this um, and, and keep pushing for, for, for change. So it, it, uh, there is a possibility that you know, a way that this could unfold is you know, with ongoing and, and larger protests until the government is forced to do something uh, you know, for example, with the, the, the chief executive political reforms uh, or something along those lines. Are the uh, betting shops in London putting money on Carrie Lamb stepping down at this point? <laughs> I don't know. We have to check the online odds on that. Yeah. Yeah. I, what about yours? What do you what do you make of her her odds of staying of being in office six months from now? I think they're still pretty good, just because I I think it's going to be very difficult for for Beijing to allow another chief executive to resign. You know, given that the Tung Chi Hua resigned in similar circumstances, I just I just I just feel that it's a, it's a bridge too far for for Beijing to be seen to giving into protests like this. So I think that she's sort of doomed to to see out her term. Yeah, I'd I'd, I'd be surprised if she's allowed to resign. The creature doomed to live Anthony <laughs> thanks again thanks so much uh, let's do recommendations uh, if you've got one ready Jeremy you can go ahead and go, go first sure um, yesterday I think uh, Disney uh, released the trailer for uh, Mulan a new live action movie and of course immediately the internet exploded <laughs> with uh, criticism as well as delight uh, and it appears to me that uh, the young Americans who grew up with uh, the Disney animated Mulan are kind of pissed off because the Mushu character which Disney made up isn't in it uh, and of course, the Asian American identity warriors are arguing about the authenticity of the story and why are there Hakka Tulo buildings when, you know, it's supposed to be said in northern China, etc., etc., etc. Hey, the Hakka um, came from northern China. Where do you think they got the idea, you know? <laughs> so uh, to make some sense of all of this nonsense, there's a great thread by the novelist uh, Jeanette Ng or uh, Wu Jili, uh, who I think she's British Chinese. Uh, explaining about the history of the Mulan story and how there are, in fact, many, many different versions of it. Um, right. So there isn't really one real Mulan story, uh, but it's a, a really worthwhile thread if you're interested in Mulan. So Disney's version is just as authentic as any other, right? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that sounds like nonsense to me, but... <laughs> no, no, that's not her argument at all. It's okay. just that being picky about... Uh, various details in the story uh, is a bit silly because it depends which version of the story you're talking about. Okay, I'm going to reserve judgment until I've seen it, which will probably be never. So I guess don't expect to hear from me. I, I, I don't. Uh, I'm not actually. You'll note recommending the Disney movie Mulan. I'm recommending the thread on Mulan by the novelist Jeanette Ng. It's a difference. Oh, there. you know, I got, I got, I got that <laughs> Jeanette Ng. Yeah, Jeanette Ng. Right. Very good. Anthony, what do you have for us? Um, yeah, I'd like to recommend a, a great little literary journal that's published out of uh, Sydney, Australia, called the Mekong Review. It's um, run by, uh, published by a guy called Min Boy Jones, uh, who's a Vietnamese Australian. Um, and he founded it while he was living in Cambodia, um, focused on the Southeast Asian region primarily, um, looking at the literature um, and, and essays about um, uh, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Singapore, and, and other countries in, in South 
Southeast Asia, and he has some um, really interesting writing in there. It's it's a quarterly, um, uh, a, a old-fashioned paper magazine, very handsome, and um, yeah, it's just some really thoughtful, interesting stuff uh, looking at the Southeast Asian region, an area much um, under-examined. Uh, so yeah, the Mekong Review, I would recommend. Oh, I've been actually, uh, you know, poking around and thinking about Mekong-related issues. Uh, Brian Eiler, if you're out there listening, we're going to reach out and invite you to come on the show and talk about your book on on the Mekong. Uh, great, that's 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 a terrific recommendation. Okay, so mine, I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Peter Hessler has a new book out that he'd been on one of our network shows, China Econ Talk, chatting with that show's host Jordan Schneider. Uh, I read the book now and. I, I hate to say this. It's it's even better than I could have possibly imagined. I hate this guy. I mean, he's so good. It's it's like the best thing that I've read in quite some time. Uh, it's called The Buried in Archaeology of the Egyptian Revolution. And while it's about Egypt, it's also very much about China uh, for China nerds like, like us. I think I, I, I know that at least I, I wish every book about another country had this kind of running comparative perspective throughout it. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Get it actually in audiobook from Audible if you if you're on Audible. Uh, Peter reads it himself and he's just great. He just does a really good job, sort of like he does in Rivertown with talking about his Chinese lessons. He he and his wife Leslie are are learning Arabic and they chronicle sort of what's happening through their vocabulary lists that they're learning. And there's just this unbelievably wonderful and tragic relationship they have with with their language teacher with their Arabic teacher. And there are all sorts of reflections about Fusa, the, the, you know, the classical Arabic versus Egyptian Arabic. And apparently, I mean, I've been corresponding with Pete and, you know, he stirred up quite a bit of controversy himself, but uh, you can, you can hear all about it yourself. Uh, do get it on Audible uh, because at least all the Arabic and the Chinese, I can attest to the Chinese at least, is all pronounced really, really well, quite correctly. Although he does butcher German, it's kind of funny at the end, you know, after hearing all these really good languages, uh, he suddenly gets to German words, <laughs> he sort of stumbles, but it's funny. Uh, it's great. Check it out. Hey, and thank you so much, Anthony. Thanks. Really yeah. uh, great to have you on yeah, again. Yeah, it's a pleasure again, as always. Yeah, thank you. And Jeremy, great talking to you, man. Likewise. Thank you, Anthony. Okay. The Seneca Podcast is powered by Sup China and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn with, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at News, And make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, e-voices, and Ta for Ta, and the Middle Earth Podcast on the culture industry in China. Thanks very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.